Back in the late 1800s, a gentleman by the name of Adoniram Judson felt the call of God, and he went to Burma, and he wanted to be able to reach the Burmese, the Buddhists in Burma, and as he began to spend time there learning their language, you know, years are going by, he's translating the Bible into their language. You know, his whole focus was reaching the Buddhists, speaking their language, adopting their culture to be able to reach them with the gospel so that Christ would invade that culture and redeem it and, and, and change it and ransom it for his glory. And so year after year, he's, he's learning the culture, he's learning the language, translating the, the Bible, and he sees no one getting saved. Five years go by, six years, and there is no one who is, who is getting saved. And I just want to ask you, if you were in his shoes, Adoniram Judson's shoes, late 1800s, and you really felt the call of God to go to this place. You've pretty much left everything behind. And here you are giving, pouring out and doing what you can to impact this culture. And nobody is getting saved. And then finally, after seven years, he hires a young man who actually was just walking by looking for work, hires him, and he's not even a Buddhist. He's not even from the city. He's from another town a little ways away, and he hires him. And in this process of Adoniram Judson's ministry, this guy by the name of Kothen Bu gets saved. I would like to ask you, if you were in... Adoniram's shoes, how would you feel? And many of us, as we go through the Christian life, do we not have expectations of what God is going to do? Now, truth be told, many people come to Christ, and their goal is they, they, they come to Jesus because they want to be happy. They come to Jesus because they desire to have an easier, better life. They want to come to Jesus because they're hoping maybe God will rescue their marriage because it's on the 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 it's it's getting ready to tank. And so they follow Christ for these reasons and they have these expectations. And don't get me wrong, God can do so many amazing things. Church, I would rather have one day in the presence of God in his kingdom than a thousand elsewhere. A a bad day in the kingdom of God is 10 times better than a good day in the world. But you, the truth is, we can have expectations. The disciples had expectations. Here they are. They're on the way to Jerusalem. What is going through their minds? Here they have sacrificed so much, just like, just like Adoniram, and, and there's expectations. Wow, after seven years, one person gets saved, and he was a murderer, Wow. It's easy to come into the kingdom with expectations. I want us to look at, at Mark chapter 10, and we are coming up on what's called Passion Week, at least in Mark. The next chapter begins Passion Week, entry into Jerusalem. And Jesus is, so actually, so chapters 11 through 16 are about that one week in Jesus's life. And so as his disciples are making their way, there's some concerns. You might remember that Jesus had just been encountered by a rich young ruler. 
And this rich young ruler, his, he had expectations. He was thinking, you know, what can I do? Set the bar, you know, at a height that I can clear in order to make it into the kingdom of God. And Jesus pulls a fast one on him and sets the bar so high, the man cannot clear this bar. Actually, he walks away because he realizes that he cannot do what Jesus asked him. And that is to give up everything. That is, sell everything that he has and give the money to the poor. And he was wealthy. He was a ruler. I mean, if without wealth, how can he rule, right? And so here he is. He walks away discouraged. And Jesus says that it is hard for the rich. It's hard for those who hold on to things to be able to make it into the kingdom of God. So Peter says, Jesus, do you remember this? We have given up everything to follow you. We've given up everything to follow you. And Jesus encourages him. He says, you know what, Peter, you're right. I just want you to know that people who give up all things and and I mean, everything to follow me in this life, in this life, they'll receive a hundred times more. And in the life to come, eternal life. And so it's going to be worth it. Leaving everything is going to be worth it because you're leaving so that you would receive immeasurable blessings. Not always looking the way we want them to. Certainly, I mean, the rich young ruler, okay, Jesus set the bar low enough. I want to clear it because I want to go to heaven. And you know what? With man, it is absolutely impossible. And so Jesus, uh, or, or rather Mark, as he's writing his gospel, has now set us up as we move into this next section to ask this question, what does it really mean to follow Jesus? Can I ask you, why do you follow Jesus? Why? Truly, if you were to, and I would encourage you, pen something, what Why are you following Jesus? What are your expectations? What are you wanting? Why do you even do this? Well, the disciples, they had reasons. We're going to discover some of them today. The crowd had certain reasons. So let's find out what they are. And Jesus then really hones in and gives us a very good answer. Here, you're with me in Mark chapter 10. I'm going to start with verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid can you just highlight or underline astonished and afraid the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid again he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him we're going to go up to Jerusalem he said and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do whatever we ask. Hmm. Have you ever had one of your kids ask, ask you that? Uh, I've, I've, I've got a question for you. Just give me whatever I'm going to ask you, right? Kind of prepping you. <laughs> what do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. Hmm. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink from the cup 
Or can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Oh, we can, they answered. Hmm, Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here, Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. He's leading up to the cross, okay? We know that. They don't, of course, but we know this. So on his way to Jerusalem, his disciples are thinking, Jesus, what are you doing? This is a really bad strategy. I mean, you're the Messiah. We really believe this. But if you're going to really rally the Jews to you to be able to usher in this golden age of your kingdom, then Jesus, this is not the way to go. You're marching right into the lion's den. You're, you're, you're going and and. This is just a really bad idea. So they were astonished. They were kind of thinking, I don't get this. The others that were following him, not the 12, but the others, they responded very differently. They actually were afraid. You see, at least with the disciples, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. I mean, if Jesus truly is the Messiah, then he is going to do something really amazing here. I don't know what it is, but I really don't get going to Jerusalem. That's where all the that's where the the hub of of Judaism is. That, that's where the Sadducees are. That's where the, the temple priests are. That, that's where the, the chief priest is. I, I don't get it. They're the high priest. I don't, I don't get it. Why are you doing this? You're going to go there and you will be persecuted, Jesus. And so the others, however, the, the disciples believing that no, no matter what Jesus does, he's got this. But, you know, I, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't understand his strategy, his plan. The others, however, they believed that this was not just a bad idea and that harm was going to come to Jesus. They were afraid because they're following him. They are about to be persecuted as well, and they fear. And they're kind of wondering, you know what, if you know, I'm kind of tagging along this Jesus guy, but if he's not the Messiah, this is a really bad thing. I want to ask you, in following Jesus, what are your expectations? Have you ever moved forward in your Christian life and you just, God, I don't understand why you are doing this. This is such a bad idea because it's going contrary to what our expectations are. 
So as they, as they move on, Jesus then pulls his 12 aside, and he wants, he wants to assure them because they don't get plan A. They're not understanding it. And so he pulls them aside, and he says, guys, listen to me. We're going to go to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, and they all knew that that was Jesus, is going to die. As soon as he says this, going to die. This, he's told this to them several times, and they have never gotten it. Now, if we were to look at Luke and what he has to say, <clears throat> he says, Mark does not, but he says they did not understand what Jesus was talking about. Again, Jesus' words were falling on deaf ears. They didn't get it. What is this? Plan? You're the Messiah, and, and yet you're telling us that you're going to go to Jerusalem, and you're going to die, and then be raised to life? What, what is this? Is, are you talking in metaphors? Like it's going to look like you're going to die. It's, you know, maybe there's going to be a major change in your kingdom. And so that way it's, you know, I don't get this. Mark, however, does not tell us that they didn't understand. Mark shows us. And he shows us with the example of James and John. Now, James and John were just told, hey, guys, Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. As a matter of fact, they're going to arrest me. They're going to mock me. They're going to flog me. They're going to crucify me. And then on the third day, I'm going to rise again. James and John come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, when you come in your glory. Now, they are not thinking, okay, Jesus, once you die and you're risen from the dead and we all die and eventually in the age to come in that kingdom, can, we, can one sit on the right and sit on the left? The, the glory that they're referring to here is this golden age that was very commonly thought of in the, in the Jewish mindset and the Jewish culture that the Messiah was going to come and, and set up this golden age. So eventually, we, I mean, we don't, I don't understand how you're going to do all of this. You're talking about dying and rising and however that's going to work. You're going to enter into your kingdom. You're going to sit in Jerusalem. You're going to rule and there's going to be this reign of peace. Hey, can one of us sit on your right and the other on your left? And Jesus has to do one of do one of these. Wow. Okay. And he he has to say, "Wait a second, guys. Hmm. Not sure you get this. They want to sit on Jesus' right and on Jesus' left. And how does Jesus answer them? He says, "You don't know." what you are asking for. Now, can I ask you, if you, were P, if you were James or John and you were asking this question, what type of an answer would you be expecting? Now, Jesus may say yes, he may say no, but if he says no, it's the qualifications for sitting on the right or on the left, you know, maybe they meet them. Maybe, you know what, guys, you, I'm sorry, you're just not godly enough. I'm sorry, you just don't love me enough. I'm sorry, you just have not accomplished great things like, oh, my man Moses or Elijah or Elisha. I mean, Daniel. I mean, these Job, these guys were intense. And this is kind of what we're expecting. This is James and John. We're, okay, have we qualified? Have we made it? Have we gained enough favor in your eyes? 
And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. And then he gives the reason. What is the reason? It has something to do with suffering. Can you drink from my cup? Can you be baptized with my baptism? I mean, are these the qualifications for sitting at the right and left hand of Jesus in his glory? And Matthew doesn't use glory. He uses kingdom. When you come in your kingdom... And often when we think of places of prominence, we, we do think about this. Well, those types of people, they're the ones who are so sold out for Jesus. You know, they're the ones who just do radical things for his kingdom. They're the ones who, you know, they, they've just accomplished so much. We look up to him. They're just so godly. But Jesus doesn't answer it that way. The sole qualification that he, that he attaches to this idea of prominence, of sitting at his right and his left. First, he says, it's not mine to give, but it has to do with suffering. Can you drink the cup? In other words, can you participate in what I'm about to participate in? Can you be baptized in what I am about to be baptized in? Now, I don't know if they understood that Jesus was talking about suffering then, but we do know that Jesus was. And so they, sh sure, Jesus, yeah, we can do this. We, can, we, we qualify for that. We have, we've kind of borne your burden in this ministry, so yeah. And Jesus, he, he thinks to himself, wow, guys, if you only know. You see, James was the first martyr in the church. We see that in, in Acts 12. First one, Herod, with the sword, puts him to death. He's the first martyr. His brother, John, is the last one. James is the first one to go. James, John is the last one. As a matter of fact, John probably outlives his brother by as much as 60 years. And so here is John, and, and he's, he's, he's gone through life, and tradition says that they tried numerous times, the emperor tried numerous times to kill him. Even says throwing him into a, a, a vat of boiling oil, and John would not die. He eventually surrenders and just exiles him to the island of Patmos, and hopefully old age will get rid of him, but at least he can't propagate this story of Jesus and his, this resurrection of this God, and he couldn't kill him. But both of them, James and John, had to endure so much persecution. But it's just interesting that this place of prominence, the right or the left, was going to be given to those who would suffer. Now, Jesus takes this metaphor of the cup and the baptism a little bit further, and we're going to get into that in, in just a minute. But the, the, the other 10, they hear what's going on. And they realize that James and John are trying to get in there to the right hand and left hand of Jesus and take these places of prominence. And the Bible says they're indignant. Now, that Greek word can be translated, fair enough, indignant, which means angry, for, but for a just reason, usually. It can also mean deeply grieved. I kind of go with the anger angle on this. Because here they are, we're all, hey guys, look, we're all in this. Only two of the 12 
we'll be able to sit in those places. After all, I mean, one of us, two of us will, because that's, what, that's what's going on here, that Jesus is establishing his kingdom here on earth, right? So two of us are going to get it. But wow, why James and John? If you're Peter, you're kind of thinking, wow, I mean, I'm the guy that has really been leading this ragtag group here. I mean, obviously, aside from Jesus, I'm his right-hand man. When he asks who he is, I'm the one that speaks up. Peter is the bold one here. Of course, I'm going to sit at Jesus' right hand, but maybe my brother Andrew, you know? And so they're indignant. Now, I'm going to tell you this, that it, what's interesting here is that the ten fail to see what's really at stake here. If sitting at the right hand and left hand has everything to do with suffering, the attitude that they're expressing is the exact opposite. It's selfish ambition. It's, hey, who said that, you, that you're being way too bold, James and John? That's not fair. And the ten become indignant. They're still not getting this idea. Now, we have looked at this concept of serving several times in the book of Mark so far. Several times. Jesus constantly in their discussion puts it on the table to talk about. <laughs> and they're still not getting it. Several times he's talked to them about the fact that he's going to die and be raised to life. They still don't get it. James and John, they still don't get it. Guys, I'm going to die and rise again. I'm not going to be here. They do not understand this concept of the kingdom of God. So Jesus has to go another step. Okay, let me just tell you. The kingdom of God is completely different than like any other kingdom. See, in those kingdoms in which the Gentiles rule, and I would venture to say not just in politics, but in business as well, for the bosses, for the, the officials, they lead very differently. They lead with authority, and with that authority, they have the, uh, they, they have the, the ability to enforce. They have the ability to punish. They have the ability to carry out the consequences if you don't follow through. But for you guys, that is not the case. Now, Hebrews 13 says, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. But you see, leaders do not lead as the world leads. Leaders in Jesus' kingdom, they lead in a very different way. They lead, he says, by serving. And so, what we, be, what we begin to discover here is this foundational concept of serving. Not just serving, but being a slave of all. Jesus then began, at the very end there, he uses this, this term that the Son of Man is going to give himself up as a ransom. And by doing this, he then becomes this example. I mean, he is God. 
He created the entire universe. He is the preeminent leader, and yet he did not come to be served, but to serve. And so when they're discussing this amongst themselves, he interjects this concept of servant leadership to the point where he says, guys, I am going to be that ransom. Now, this, this word literally means a, a payment made for someone. So if you're paying for someone, that means that they're a slave. So if you are buying them, you are giving a slave payment. You are purchasing them. Jesus would become that purchase price. If he is our ransom, then that means that we have been a slave to either sin or Satan. And in our case, it's both. We, we have been a slave to sin, and we have been a slave to Satan himself. And so Jesus says that he is going to be that payment price to purchase us. And the reason is because sin has separated us from God, and God is justly pouring out his wrath upon us because of our sin. And the Bible makes this clear in a number of places. It says in Ephesians 2 that we were by nature objects of wrath. It says in John 3 that those <coughs> excuse me, those who, believe, those who believe in Jesus have life, but those who do not, those who reject him, not only don't have life, but the wrath of God remains on them. That the consequence of our sin is God's just wrath. Now, many people reject this idea, even within the confines of the church. It's a liberal concept. Generally, they throw it out because the question then becomes, who is this ransom being paid to? And, and many people made the mistake in the past of saying this ransom was paid to Satan. But this is not true because God owes Satan nothing. You were a slave to Satan. God did not pay Satan with the life of Jesus to purchase you because God owes Satan nothing. So who was this ransom paid to? Now, because the answer seems strange, people have thrown this idea of the ransom out. But you see, we need to understand that this concept of a ransom price is at the heart of the gospel. It is what the cross is all about. And it then becomes this chief example of how we are to live as servants with lives poured out. Now, indeed, James and John are going to suffer just like Jesus is going to, or to a degree in which Jesus is going to suffer, but Jesus is going to suffer far more. You see, when Jesus drinks the cup, that is an idiom in Hebrew basically meaning, are, are you going to be able to experience what I experience? And, and this is true. But Jesus, when he's talking about the cup, he is talking about something more than just experiencing what he's going to, you know, the suffering that he's going to go through. The cup that he's referring to, if you can look at it back in Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah prophesies, the Lord says to Jeremiah, tell the nations, not just 
Israel, but tell the nations that they are going to be drinking from my cup of wrath, and I'm going to pour it out upon all nations for how they have treated Israel, my servant. And their day is coming. I'm going to judge them. I'm going to pour out my wrath upon their sin. And the truth is, that same cup of wrath is what we are to drink from apart from Christ. This is the wrath of God that is poured out upon all sin. It is absolutely inescapable apart from Christ's ransom price. So he drank that cup of wrath. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Father, If it's possible, take this cup from me. Not just this cup of suffering, but this cup in which he would drink from the wrath of God. And somehow, when we were singing here this morning, appeasing the wrath of God. So this ransom price was absolutely not paid to Satan. But it wasn't paid to God either. Because we weren't slaves to God. And then the life of Jesus freed us from that. We were slaves to sin. And so we we come at this seeming inconsistency in which Jesus's life is this ransom price to the righteous demands of God. It is a price that is paid for a slave. And it's it's true when you are set free, when when someone does something amazing like this, actually sacrificing themselves for maybe a a tremendous financial or time, some way in which they serve you, is there not something on your part that you now feel obligated to them? And Jesus, or, or, or rather the scriptures say that even though Christ has paid this ransom for us, it, it's not to Satan, it's not to God, but it is a ransom price. And it is the focal point of the gospel in satisfying the righteous demands of God's law. We then feel, wow, in view of God's mercies, I must present myself as a living sacrifice. And we make this mistake of thinking, therefore, I owe God something. And as Christians, we can go through our lives feeling as if I am living this hard Christian life to be able to pay God back. And I want to challenge us on this. There is no possible way that you can ever pay God back. This past Wednesday, um, Diego was, was touching on some of this, and I would just say amen, because there is this tendency within Christianity, and we feel as if we've got to pay God back. And if we don't do a good job of paying him back, We feel guilty. I want to just tell you, see, that is what Jesus paid for. He paid the price for me, not so that I'm obligated to pay him back. The debt is insurmountable. You can never touch that debt. And so Jesus paid the price in full. We do not have to pay him back. Then what is it that causes us to long to serve him? And it's out of love. It is out of love. A story is told about a a man years and years ago. He went to the auctions. And those types of auctions, they sold slaves. All types of food. And a woman was up on the block to be sold. And the men are catcalling, and they're 
throwing their prices around, and he's just kind of wondering, what could he do in a situation like this? And so he places a bid. And the others top the bid and back and forth, and finally he places the top bid, and he purchases her. And she comes down, and with scorn in her eyes, She's just thinking, how dare you purchasing me for whatever fleshly desires you have? And she, he just says, I need you to come with me. And she spits in his face. He says, no, I need you to come to me. Come with me. And he takes her by the wrist and he leads her to the courthouse. And he says, I need you to stay here and I'll be back in one minute. And he made the transaction. And he came back out. And she looked at him and she, she said, how dare you think that just because you purchase me that I in some way might belong to you? And he says, well, I guess what you don't realize is that now you do not because I purchased you to set you free. How do you respond to that? And so... She wanted to just serve him, not because somehow she would be able to pay off that debt, because she wouldn't, but out of gratitude. What you have, you purchased me, not for your own fleshly desires, but you purchased me for me to be free. And she chose to be his servant for the rest of her life. Jesus paid that ransom price. Why? Because in the kingdom of God, he wanted us to be his own, to be able to serve, not out of obligation, not out of, well, God, I guess I'm going to have to some way find a way to pay this off, but rather, God, I love you, and I am going to now choose to live my life surrendered to you. Now, here's the significance of all of this. Because as, as Jesus is laying this out, this whole concept, not just of leadership, but life itself, is all about serving and laying your life down for others. Even those who would one day, and there will be a time in which, I guess, one person will sit at the right hand of Jesus and on the left. And I know it's not going to be me. Because the, those who are qualified are those who have surrendered so much to Christ. They have chosen to live their lives completely free from personal desires. This is what I want. This is, you know, when I in the very beginning said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow Jesus because this is what I, I want happiness. I want joy. I want, I want my marriage to work. I want in this world, I want something good. I want an easier life. And maybe if I follow Jesus, he'll reward me with all of these good things. And I'm not saying that God would not do that. I would have to say that I'm one of the blessed, most blessed men. We didn't, we were not supposed to have children. And if we did, very few. And God healed my wife so that we would be able to have five children. And I would have to say five amazing children. I feel like the most privileged man on the face of planet earth. I truly do. And I love my children so much. And I love more. And I just have to say, God, thank you for all of this. But this is not why I chose to serve God. But you know what, church? This is what God does. 
Jesus focuses on this concept of serving. And I want to ask you, why do you follow Jesus? Are you following him, hoping to get things for this life? Or are you having this mindset, you know what? It is not about me. It is about serving him. You know, when, when I wanted to, when I got married and my wife and I were um, thinking about having kids, I just thought holding a, a little one in my arms, that would be so awesome. And I thought about all of the good stuff that becomes with being a parent, okay? I had no idea what I was really getting into in all of the sleepless nights, all of the vomiting, all of the sickness, all of the, you, wow, <coughs> cleaning up all of their messes every single night, you know, going through the routine with bathing and brushing teeth and getting them ready for bed. And if they weren't on task, you know, hey, come on now, what did dad say? And then putting them down at night. Wow, that was a, that was a huge sacrifice. But you know what? Here is something that I personally have found that when you do something like that and you express love in this way of sacrificing, I, I fell in love with my kids even more. I remember when Juliana was six months old. And I just, I, I was thinking, here she is, six months. I've known her only for six months. I've known Kate for over three years. And I just, I loved Kate, and, and I'm just thinking, wow, here's a new one. Can I love this little baby as much as I love Kate? And, and really, that was a real question. Can, can I possibly do that? And at six months, Juliana came down with the croup. And we're just, wow, what do we do? She's, she's breathing very heavily. So... I made the mistake of turning on the hot shower, letting it run for however long so that the room was filled with hot steam, and then I took her in there. Unfortunately, that made it worse because it was just bringing up more junk, and she, now she was starting to acquire a blue tinge to her skin, and that scared us. And so we rush her off to the hospital. We're just praying over her and just saying, God, please, please heal our daughter. And here she is now, and the doctors are taking care of her. And we're just, we're, we're new parents, right? And we're trying to do our best. And she, in, in our estimation, we feel like, well, we could lose her. No way. And my heart is endeared to her during this process as we're sacrificing, staying up late at night. And in this process of serving and sacrificing, that's not really what I signed up to be a dad for. I signed up for all the good benefits. You know, when I am come home from work, you know, my kids rally to daddy. Yay, dad, we're so glad to see you. Your wife gives you a marvelous kiss and then some more. And, and that you know, you'll, I mean, I love being a dad. You know, my kids don't rush to the door anymore, but... Come to think of it, maybe we... Anyway, we, we're good. I, I, I've loved being a dad. I really have. But that love was only intensified as I served. 
And I'm just going to suggest to you, this life of serving other people, serving God, sacrificing, even when you see no benefit on the horizon, one day in the kingdom, a, a bad day, bad in quotes, day in the kingdom of God is far better than a good day in the world. Adoniram Judson labored for seven years. And in those seven years, one person had gotten saved. If the story ended there, I truly believe that Jesus would welcome him with arms open wide, the hugest smile. Adoniram, you did exactly what I asked you to do. And he would have, but God, one person saved? Really? That's it? That's exactly what I wanted you to do. That murderer, I wanted to rescue him. I pursued him for 30-some years. And finally, through your testimony, he was one to Christ. Well done, good and faithful servant. This is what life is all about. It's about laying your life down for others, serving them, loving them. That's what it's about. It's not about how high your joyometer in life gets and making sure it's always, you know, way over on the right. That's not what life is all about. It is about, I mean, those who hold the most prominent places in the kingdom at the right and the left hand of Jesus. Jesus said it's because of how they sacrificed and suffered for him. And so Adoniram, one convert in seven years. As he began to talk to Cothan Bue, Cothan Bue began to share with him his culture. And he was very excited because he wanted to take the gospel to his culture. And there had been a prophecy given in his depraved culture, church, a prophecy that was given hundreds of years earlier that a white man would come with a book that would speak about God and show them the way to eternal life. And when Cothan Bu got saved and he began to read this book, he realized that God was fulfilling this prophetic word. God had planted a seed, a redemptive seed in Cothan Bu's culture. And what happened was not that that entire city of Buddhists got saved. That was Adoniram's goal. Instead, that was Adoniram's goal, but instead, Cothan Bu went to his culture, hundreds of thousands, and began preaching the gospel. And there was such a move of God, tens of thousands saved every year. To the point Adoniram was discussing, because he was from England, discussing with them, and, and they just couldn't understand, you know, something's wrong. You're not preaching the gospel, right? Something's wrong. Too many, no lie, church, too many people are getting saved. That, that's, that was their argument. Too many, something's wrong with your ministry, Adoniram. There have been so many examples in which the gospel went into a culture. And, 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 and the, the missionary didn't know which culture. He, God didn't give them this revelation as far as who to reach. It was almost always incidental. And 
And I shared the gospel, and this person got saved. Okay, and, but that person, God uses it in such an explosive way. And this is the very nature of God. Many times when we follow Jesus, we do it for some sense of joy or prominence or some benefits package from this that I can experience in this life. But Adoniram, one convert. His goal, I'm sure, was a whole lot more than one convert. But God used that one convert to reach thousands and thousands and thousands of the Karim in his culture. So I just want to ask you, why do you serve Jesus? Now, I'm not saying that God is going to use you in this magnificent way in which thousands were to come to Christ. I pray that for each of you. I really do. Adoniram won that one person. He, now, he went with Cuthambu to in proclaiming the gospel with him, but Cuthambu was the one who knew the language and spoke it, preached it. So, I don't know, Adoniram, maybe he had one convert to his list. But wow, how God used that man's life, sacrificing years and years. Jesus says that is exactly the lifestyle that he's called us to. That lifestyle that's laid out. That lifestyle that, like a parent, they're not in it for the perks. You learn that pretty quickly up front as a parent, as a mom or dad. You do it because there is something beautiful in serving. Because serving is the heart of the kingdom. And church, that's what you've been called to. Amen. Will you stand with me? We're going to have communion right now. So if someone could get the children, that would be great. <clears throat> and could we have the lights as well? Thank you, Damon. <clears throat> Perfect. Father, thank you that you were willing to send your son Jesus as my ransom to purchase me. The fact, Father, that he has turned away every ounce of justified anger towards me. And, Father, that your attitude towards us is nothing other than love, acceptance. We do not have to somehow pay that ransom price off. Jesus sacrificed everything. And Jesus, you're calling us to live that type of a lifestyle. And Lord, I, I'm going to have to confess. I think I come into your kingdom and still in your kingdom have expectations. And there are certain things, God, I, I think if I'm going to sacrifice this much, then God, what's in it for me? And I just ask you, Lord, give me that heart that Jesus had that was willing to serve. We didn't come to be served. And he was the preeminent one. But he came to serve. And so I ask you, Father, 
would you teach us to have that type of a servant's heart? As we're asking this question, why do you even follow Jesus? Jesus, you promised you'll receive a hundred times more in this life as well as persecutions. Father, if we're holding on to things, maybe even dreams that are not from you, if we're holding on to things too tightly, would you please deal with our hearts right now? And would you teach us to have that servant's attitude that Jesus had? Who gave everything to advance your kingdom. So, Father, do that work in us. And Jesus, thank you that you were willing to sacrifice so, so much for us. We're so grateful. In Jesus' name. And on that night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the one loaf of bread that would represent his body. And that body on the cross was to be broken. It was to be broken for you and for me as part of that ransom price. But it also represents not just his body, himself physically, it represents each of us, that one body. And scripture says that if you have ought against your brother, make sure that that is taken care of. And I'm just gonna encourage you in the next few minutes, if there is something that is keeping you divided from another brother or sister, that you allow God to deal with, that's what it means to consider the body of Christ. Not just his physical body, but what his physical body was given for us. His united body. And so, Father, I ask that you would bless this one loaf as it represents the body of Christ and the full extent of his love expressed for us. And I thank you, Lord, that you are so good in sending your son Jesus, that his body was broken for us, that we too would live broken, laid down lives 